Amen. Thank you, Paul. It is a joy to be together this morning. Continue to be in prayer, please, for the elders and for the deacons, for the pastoral search team, for the Constitution Committee. We, we all need prayer. We pray for one another. And there will be reports uh, this Tuesday at uh, 7.30 at our meeting here. And you may join us in that meeting either in person or online. One of the things I should make you aware of is um, these little cards we have available in the office. It's just a means of inviting someone. Uh, you can write in the back, as I have written here, the summer's time is Sunday at 10, and it's a means of inviting people, and they can listen online. I spoke to one of my neighbors this morning and, and just invited her to join us, if she would like, at uh, 10 a.m. on YouTube. So you can, you can invite others if you would like to using those little cards. Here at Fishkill Baptist, we believe that the Bible is God speaking. And so we turn again this morning to the Bible, and we're in Mark 3. And we're going to continue to listen to what God is teaching us in his word yeah, from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3. We'll read that passage or the passage for this morning in just a moment. God has created us male and female in his image. Made like him, men and women are eternal beings. We are moral creatures in a moral universe. And decisions we make have consequences. And in light of his judgment, ultimately eternal consequences. Our eternal destiny is determined by our commitments. Out of his love for us, God has sent his Son to be a mediator between God and man, to be our Savior and our Lord. And the Gospel of Mark is telling us about his coming, about his ministry, his preaching in Galilee. He said as he went from village to village, the time has come. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe the Gospel. He was preaching from village to village. And Mark is telling us that response to him was varied. On the one hand, people crowded from all around. Let me just remind you. Well, this morning, the first verse we're going to read is Mark 3.20. And it says, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples could not e were not even able to eat. Well, that's an indication of his overwhelming popularity. But let me point out that Mark has said this again and again. Turn back to chapter 1, and we read in verse 20, 28, news about Jesus spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. In verse 33, the whole town gathered at the door. You can imagine that scene. Jesus is in a house, and because Jesus is there, everyone in the town hears, and they come and gather at the door. In verse 37, this is all in Mark 1, uh, Jesus had gotten alone for prayer, 
And his disciples finally <laughs> found him, and they said, everyone is looking for you. That's verse 37. The chapter, chapter 1 concludes with the words in verse 45, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So again and again, Mark is reporting the overwhelming crowds. People are coming from everywhere to hear his teaching and to experience his miraculous healing power. As a matter of fact, chapter 2 begins with the account of uh, Jesus being so crowded by people that they brought a man on a mat who was paralyzed and unable to get up. They brought a man on a mat and they couldn't get to him. And so they went up the side of the roof and got on the flat roof and dug through the roof and lowered the man on, a, on the mat down to Jesus because that was the only way they could get to him. So again and again, Mark has emphasized the, 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 the crowds, the overwhelming response. In 3.8, we read, when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, and from the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. They're coming from all around. So that's one response. People are eager to hear his teaching, eager to experience his healing power because they have ailments and diseases and the demons are, are leaving people as he frees them. The other response is one of rejection. In 3.6, we read that the Pharisees and the Herodians were meeting together and they decided that they needed to kill him. How can we get rid of him? Everyone... All of humanity must decide who is Jesus. Is Jesus an apocalyptic preacher who expected the end to come any moment and he was wrong? Is Jesus a, 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 a simply a great human teacher? Is he a studious Jew who studied the law and created this plot to present himself as the Messiah even though he was not. That thesis was developed in 1965 in a book called The Passover Plot. Well, who is Jesus? And who is Jesus in your life? That's the question. Let's read the text, beginning at Mark 3, verse 20. Now, this is the ninth time that Jesus, that Mark reports that Jesus is overwhelmed by people who are gathering around him. Mark 3.20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, that by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, 
that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Apparently they couldn't get to him, so they send someone in to, to give the message. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at, the, at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the first example of a stylistic device, a literary device in Mark's gospel called bracketing. He begins a story and then he interjects another story and then he concludes the first story. He brackets the story. In this case, the, the account begins with his, his relatives coming for him. Then there is the account of the scribes coming from Jerusalem and then he comes back at the end to his family who has come for him. We'll notice that. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd and his family comes for him. They want to take hold of him. They've concluded that he's, he's out of his mind. He's insane. He's lost touch with reality. Jesus, after all, was a, was a carpenter. He's left his work. Jesus was an untrained rabbi. I mean, he was not trained in rabbinical circles. And here he is, even though he is untrained, he is challenging all the religious leadership in the country. And he's overwhelmed by crowds. So much so that they can't even find time to eat. And so his family concludes he's, he's just out of touch. He's lost touch with reality. It, the text says uh, he's out of his mind. And that's a good translation. He's, we, have to, we have to get him. We have to help him. They intend to round him up. Uh, they are out to stop him. Verse 31 tells us that this is Mary and his brothers. Now we know from other passages that his brothers do not believe in him and they are, they are jealous of him. But of course Mary, Mary knows that he is unique. She knows that he is the Holy One of God. Mary knows that Jesus is the Son of God. The angel came to her and the Spirit of God had come upon her. She knows that his birth was miraculous. She knows that he is unique. I think that Mary was well motivated, but also very concerned for her son. Perhaps influenced by her other children, Jesus' brothers, she concludes that she must, must help him, must get him. And they're out to stop him. 
So in this passage, first of all, Jesus is charged with insanity. And secondly, he is accused of demon possession. The scribes who come from Jerusalem are probably sent by the Sanhedrin to monitor the, this teacher who is uh, untrained, this rabbi, Jesus from Nazareth, who's gathering these great crowds. And they come and they're monitoring him. And they have a simple explanation for his healing power. He is demon-possessed. And he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Notice that apparently they say these things behind his back, not directly to him, because it says in verse 23, Jesus called them. <laughs> he had to summon them, and then he could answer them. Then he could speak to them. Notice also that it says in verse 30, 23 that he, he spoke to them in parables. Parables uh, are a way of engaging the mind. Instead of directly answering and, and provoking more conflict, parables are, are little stories or are figurative language that invite you to think and might engage the mind and open the heart a little more easily. And so he speaks to them in parables. And his answer is simple enough. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And then he goes even, he's going from larger to smaller, kingdom and house, and then down to one individual. If Satan is divided against himself and opposes himself, he's finished. And obviously, Satan is not finished, so their argument cannot be correct. And then he uses another image in verse 27. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and take away his possessions unless he first bind the strong man. In this little parabolic image, the strong man is Satan himself. And the binding of the strong man comes from Jesus and his kingdom message. The Lord Jesus is of greater power and therefore he can rob him of his possessions. He can free those who are under the domination of Satan. This passage teaches us that rejecting Jesus is dangerous. These scribes could be translated scribes. They're experts in the law. They're teachers of the law. These scribes who come from Jerusalem are seeing the mighty hand of God directly in front of them. They're seeing, they're seeing people healed. A leper has been healed. Jesus forgives sin. Jesus, the, 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 the demons fall down before him and they say, you are the son of God. They see these miracles and they reject them. They reject Jesus. And, and, and by the way, I should say that this is repeated. In verse 22 and verse 30, the language indicates they were saying this again and again. Verse 30, he said this because they were saying. And that, that phrase indicates repeated. They were saying it again and again. He has an evil spirit. Repeated rejection becomes habitual and eventually the will becomes granite. Eventually one becomes incapable of repentance, so accustomed to rejecting. 
There is no forgiveness where there is no repentance. These people cannot experience forgiveness because they will never accept it. They reject him. Jesus does not say that they have already committed the sin that is described as an eternal sin, a sin that can never be forgiven. Uh, he is warning them against the great danger of committing that sin. And then the passage comes back to the family. Jesus' family, his mother, Mary, and her brothers, or his brothers, were unable to get to him, and they sent a message, and, and the messenger says, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says, looking at those who are around him, listening to the word of God, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever listens to the word of God, whoever obeys God, he is my mother and my brother and my sister. And so the Lord Jesus uh, gives a new perspective on family as the passage concludes. I want to look at this passage and ask three questions about how this passage comes to our lives today. First of all, what about the unforgivable sin? Even saying those words, a sin that is eternal, unforgivable sin, makes us extremely uncomfortable. It is fearful and fright, uh, uh, frightening. Uh, the unforgivable sin is deliberately rejecting the light when it's right in front of you and choosing the darkness instead. It is ascribing the works of Jesus done in the power of his spirit to the power of Satan and continuing and persisting in that rejection and never turning away from it. Many sensitive people have been desperately concerned, this is right through the Christian history, been desperately concerned that they may have committed a sin that is unforgivable. And, uh, and so we need to think about this passage and, and its meaning. Um, the message of the gospel is full and free and complete and perfect forgiveness for every sin. Look at verse 28. Before we look at verse 29, we should not forget verse 28. Notice the word, verse 28 begins with the word, I tell you the truth. That's the, that's the translation of a single Aramaic word. In Aramaic, Jesus says, Amen. Amen is a means of emphasizing the importance and the complete truthfulness, the, sort of a, an emphatic statement. Amen, I, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. We ought to stop there before we go on to verse 29. Verse 28 is an astonishing statement of the mercy and the forgiveness of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And only after that statement comes the warning of verse 29. 
Let me tell you the story of a man by the name of Ernest White. Ernest White was a uh, Christian psychiatrist, wrote a book entitled The Way of Release decades ago. Ernest White tells the experience he had of a young man, 18 years old, who came into his office desperately afraid that he had committed the unforgivable sin. Dr. White said to him, well, tell me. Tell me about what you've done. So the young man did. He told him, and he, was, he freely told him his story, and indeed he had sinned grievously. Dr. White listened carefully, and after this young man had poured out his confession and his sin, Dr. White said to him, I want you to imagine that Jesus, I want you to imagine the Lord Jesus just as he was in his, when he was here in his earthly ministry, and I want you to imagine what would it be like, what would he be like if he, if he heard you tell this very story. And he said, I want you to think for a moment before you answer. So the young man thought for a moment and then he said, I think he would be very merciful. And then Dr. White said, in fact, the Lord Jesus is here by his spirit in this room and he has heard everything you've told me. He is here. And he is a merciful Savior. And Dr. White explained to him that the Lord Jesus had gone to the cross, that the penalty for sin is death. And Jesus on the cross had paid that terrible penalty for this young man and for all. He explained the good news. Jesus was risen from the dead. And that young man that day in the counselor's office received Christ as his savior. And he left the office that day with a clear conscience. Assured by the promises of the gospel, of God's free and full forgiveness granted through the cross, granted through the death of the Savior. That is the message of the gospel. The gospel calls all to turn to Christ. Now, the second question I want to ask is, what about the family? Uh, Jesus is not rejecting the natural family. I'm sure that the Lord Jesus had time for his mother. As a matter of fact, we learn Later on, in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, after the, the death and resurrection of Christ, when the 120 are waiting for the promised Holy Spirit who is, be, who is going to be poured out, when they're waiting for that, among those who are waiting, among the 120, it explicitly mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They, too, came to faith. But in this passage, the Lord Jesus is emphasizing a, a tie, a bond, a family that is even richer and deeper than the ties of blood, and that is the ties of faith. Who are my mother and my brothers? 
looking around at those who are hearing and obeying the word of God, he says, here is my mother and my brother and my sister, the family of God, the household of faith. I was reading recently in Time magazine about the, the epidemic of loneliness in the United States. As a matter of fact, mental health professionals said, say that there is an epidemic of loneliness in the United States before the COVID crisis. An estimated 36 million Americans living all alone, and many of them are suffering from loneliness. The COVID crisis has only broadened and deepened the crisis of loneliness in the United States of America. Those who belong to the Church of Christ have a family they can depend on and turn to in every time of need. I remember one time when my wife Barbara had had surgery and she came home and the cards just kept coming from her, from her church family. Uh, and Barbara puts the cards up around the house on the, on the dining room table and on the, on the, the hutch next to the table and, and there were cards everywhere. Jonathan, our son, came from Buffalo just to be with his mom after the surgery. And, uh, and he looked at the cards and he said, you're part of a community, of a, a wonderful supporting community. That is what Jesus is talking about, the household of God, the family of faith. He gives a new perspective on the richness and the meaning of family. The third question this passage compels us to ask is, who is Jesus? Every person must answer that question. Jesus of Nazareth was a carpenter in a tiny village in a small corner of the Roman Empire. And yet, history itself is divided around him. We speak of B.C. and A.D. because of Jesus of Nazareth. Who is Jesus? And who is Jesus in your life? Every person must answer that question. Was he crazy? Was he demon-possessed? Was he uh, an apocalyptic preacher who was simply wrong about the nearness of the end? Or was he a great moral teacher that's the option that some have taken. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, dismissed the miracles of Jesus. That didn't happen. He dismissed the resurrection. But Thomas Jefferson said that the, the, uh, the morals of Jesus are the greatest moral teaching of all time. And so actually, uh, Thomas Jefferson produced his own Bible, which excised the miracles and took out the resurrection, but preserved the moral teaching of Jesus. Was he a great moral teacher, merely human teacher? Let me read to you a passage from, uh, from C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who said he is a poached egg or else he would be a, uh, the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him, a demon, uh, kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Mark is presenting Jesus and Mark has a point of view. Mark is insisting that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to save us sinners. Do you remember the vision that John had, John the Apostle? It's recorded for us. I mean, many of his visions are recorded in the last book of the Bible, but let me just remind you of one of his visions. John is in a vision and he's taken up to heaven. A loud voice, like a trumpet, says, come up here. And John is, in his vision, transported into heaven. And John, as he is transported into heaven, is confronted with a throne. And one who sits on it. He is king over all. And as John looks, he tries to describe what he sees. Around the throne are 24 other thrones. And they're, the ones who are on the other thrones have golden crowns on their head. At the center of the throne, closer to the throne, are four living creatures. And they are described in ways that are frightening and, and amazing and astonishing. There are colors the colors of the rainbow are around the throne and there's lightning and thunder around the throne as John tries to describe what he experiences as he's taken up into heaven in this vision. And then as the vision continues, the one who is seated on the throne has in his right hand a scroll the scroll is sealed. And a, an angel with a mighty voice that careens down through history and across the, the galaxies, the, the angel says in a mighty voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? And no one is worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to weep. And he weeps and he weeps. And then as his vision continues, one of the elders comes to him and says, Do not weep. The lion the tribe of, of the tribe of Judah, the seed of David, has conquered. And he is worthy to open the scroll. And John turns and he sees a lamb as if he had been slaughtered. It is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus goes and he takes 
the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And as he takes the, the, the scroll, the four, the four angelic beings who are immediately around the throne fall down and worship. And then the 24 elders around the throne, they also fall down and worship. And then as the vision continues, John describes myriads and myriads of angels all around and they fall down and worship. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth join in and worship. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive riches and honor and glory and power and praise. He is worthy. And only he is worthy to open the scroll and to stand in the presence of him who is on the throne. Who is Jesus? This passage compels everyone to answer that question. Is he insane? Is he demon-possessed? Mark tells us he is the Son of God come to save, come to save you. You must decide. Remember, we are created in the image of God and our, our commitments have eternal consequences. You must decide. You must receive Christ as Savior and Lord or reject him. And by that choice, decide your eternal destiny. Let's bow together in prayer. And this morning, if you would like to trust in Jesus, I'm going to ask you to pray along with me. I don't care where you are, whether you're here in the sanctuary or in your home. In the silence of this moment, you can pray. God knows your heart. And you can pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I surrender. Lord Jesus, I believe that you endured the penalty for my sin on the cross. And I believe that you were raised again. Lord Jesus, please come into my life. Please come into my life and forgive me and make me part of your family, part of the household of God. I trust in you, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for everyone who hears my voice and everyone across our whole country who hears the call of the gospel that you would open hearts, open hearts to trust in Jesus, to follow him. How we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, <laughs> that you suffered for us, that you came for us, that you gave yourself for us, that you were exalted to the right hand of God the Savior of the world. We thank you that we become part of your family through faith. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.